It is wonderful to have Joel and Darla back. They just came back from mission work over the summer. Welcome back, folks. Good to have them with us. Encouragement to us. We are in Luke chapter 16, but uh, keep a finger in 1 Corinthians 7. We've been working through, if you're a visitor, the, the gospel of Luke. And uh, verse by verse, and we're making our progress through, and we land on one verse today in particular. And uh, we're in Luke chapter 16, and we had just observed two weeks ago the Pharisees who had concocted just innumerable traditions, countless traditions, to circumvent Scripture, to work their way around it. And, and in verse 18 of Luke chapter 16, Jesus shares just one of the examples, just one example, um, how they dismissed Scripture through how they abused God's single provision permitting divorce back in the law, Deuteronomy chapter 24. You know, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in Deuteronomy chapter 24 uh, because we did that back on July uh, 14th, I believe it was, when we talked about thou shalt not commit adultery. We went to Deuteronomy chapter 24. And uh, let me just remind us a little bit that in the law, when a husband found an indecency in his wife, uh, and, and when he wanted to issue her, issue her a certificate of divorce, it was supposed to be for some kind of sexual indecency that he found in her. That Hebrew word in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, it, it, it's actually nakedness. We discussed that a few weeks ago. It, that type of indecency implies a nakedness he had found in her. And by divorcing an Israelite publicly then testified that he found her intolerably indecent. Remember that? And so indecent that he must put her away through a writing of a certificate of divorce. Therefore, verse 4 in Deuteronomy 24 states that, that afterward he was never permitted to marry her again. Uh, he could not remarry her later because then he would have been publicly acknowledging that, well, she really wasn't all that indecent. Uh, remarriage in that case would have made a mockery of God's one provision for divorce. So he was not allowed to remarry his original wife. And as we also learned several weeks ago, uh, discovering that sexual indecency in her, that was the clear and reasonable interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. It is clear, it is reasonable in the law, but the tradition of the Pharisees provided supplemental guidelines that added to the law so that a husband could essentially divorce his wife for, well, any reason at all. And that's what they're asking Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. Uh, Teacher, is it lawful for me to divorce or a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? To them, Jesus declared in Matthew 19.9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality or fornication, is that word, um, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Uh, Consequently, the principle that Jesus taught aligned perfectly with that which what, with what Moses taught in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Jesus aligned perfectly with the law given by Moses, an indecency, a sexual indecency. Who'd have thunk it, right? Jesus lines right up with Scripture every time. Um, that's why in our passage in Luke 
chapter 16, verse 17, Jesus assures the Pharisees this. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. You probably noticed there that Luke doesn't include uh, that provision for sexual immorality, that provision for divorce. Uh, Silence doesn't suggest that Luke disregards what has remained in force since Moses and restated by Jesus. Uh, Also, sexual immorality does not require divorce. It doesn't require a person to to divorce their spouse if they find that there has been sexual immorality. In fact, our church, under under nearly any circumstance, would, in any conceivable scenario, we would encourage forgiveness and restoration. That would be our position. But if reconciliation cannot be achieved, uh, Jesus assures for sexual immorality that divorce is permissible. Um, there are a number of folks out there, a number of people teaching um, that deny Jesus' provision in this case. Uh, they normally do so because they approach Scripture already in possession of an ill-conceived doctrine that insists that, that divorce and remarriage is never, under any circumstances whatsoever, recognized by God. You will hear this position out there. Um, I'll further expose that error. Not just that Jesus gave the one provision, or restated the one provision given in Deuteronomy 24, uh, but I'll expose that error further later on. And since Jesus' words were so clear, since they were so clear in Matthew 19, you know, folks have to twist, they have to distort, they have to massage and contort his words in order to propose a prohibition against divorce. Uh, yet even after, when you listen to them, their extensive pontificating, uh, that argument is just so flawed as you get into Scripture. You, you just scratch your head, it's like, how did, how did they get there? You know, it's like it's clear as mud how they arrived at that uh, place. Uh, Jesus declared, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter of the law to fail. So that error, folks, it cuts both ways. Um, Some will avoid Scripture by making divorce easily accessible. That's what the Pharisees were doing. Other avoid Scripture by taking away the provision that God has given. Both are equally destructive. Uh, So I invite you in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, before we start there, I'd like you to just contemplate a couple things. If you've never really weighed uh, the material you're going to get today, think about this and a few of these things. First, number one, the law offered a provision for divorce in cases of sexual immorality, and Jesus restated this identical provision in Matthew 19.9. Therefore, we as a church... We as a believing body of Christ here, we recognize, I always have as long as I've been here, and before, uh, the previous constitution was the same way, we as a church recognize the physical act of sexual immorality is grounds for divorce and remarriage. Um, Secondly, I would like you to consider how Jesus recognizes remarriage uh, not only after a lawful divorce, one for sexual immorality, but even after an unlawful divorce that begins in adultery. 
Uh, Look again at Luke chapter 16, verse 18. Uh, This is a place where Jesus is referring to an unlawful divorce. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. That, That Greek word there that Jesus uses twice in this passage, it it literally is marriage in the Greek. Uh, Jesus did not say everyone who divorces his wife and then cohabitates with another person commits adultery. He clearly recognizes an unlawfully established union is a marriage. It, it, It is a marriage. Or he would not have referred to it as a marriage. He would have referred to it as fornication. Sex outside of marriage. Um, now, you may wonder if Jesus knows the difference between marriage and well, what the world would, would deem you know, living together or doing whatever they call shacking up, whatever they call it today. Does Jesus know the difference? Does he know the difference? Oh, he does. He does. For in John chapter 4, he, he has a little encounter with a Samaritan woman at a well. She's traveled alone to get water during the hot part of the day. Why? Because she is recognized in that community. She's been identified as a homewrecker. And when exposing her immoral past, Jesus, during the discussion, says to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. The context suggests this woman had repeatedly behaved immorally, yet Jesus recognized her five previous relationships as marriage to a husband while distinguishing them from her current sexual relationship who wasn't her husband. Follow me? He recognized repeated marriages as husbands and then even one that wasn't qualified as a marriage. So Jesus absolutely recognized subsequent marriages, even after multiple unlawful divorces. Uh, There's no doctrine in Scripture, this is what I want to get to, there's no doctrine in Scripture of perpetual adultery for those who've divorced and remarried. Um, there, There may be a relationship that began as adulterous. Jesus is trying to discourage Any form of adultery in leaving a marriage, we'll get to that. Jesus is very serious about marriage, as are we. Uh, But nowhere in Scripture does it suggest that remarriage places a person in some sort of unredeemable state uh, of marriage purgatory or perpetual adultery. That that idea is made up, folks. People don't get that from the Bible. They, They come to that elsewhere and they impose it onto the Bible. Uh, Jesus recognizes divorce and remarriage uh, under certain criteria especially. Is this important today? Is this important for the church today to understand in America? Folks, it is. It really is. Some churches, um, and I'll get to that in a moment, but some churches will not recognize a remarriage under any circumstances. Some will not even allow a repentant or repentant Christians in a second marriage to become church members. Um, Some won't allow them to be baptized. Others suggest and tell you, get this, 
Others, others suggest until you leave your current spouse and children behind and be reconciled to your original spouse, even if they have to leave their new spouse and children behind, until that original marriage is restored, somehow you remain in this perpetual state of, of marriage purgatory or purgatorial state of adultery in limbo. Divorce is by some representatives some sort of just unpardonable sin. Irredeemable state. Unfortunately, the error is so common today. It really is um, more common than many may think. We've, in fact, by the way, we've had a number of folks here just in, in the short five years I've been here who have, who have been disturbed by this and come to Pastor Weiler and I for clarification. Not any one person either. Multiple people. Um, have come to us for clarification. Um, they've been distressed due to, uh, you know, what I guess I kind of call self-ordained prophets, ones with their own YouTube channel. Uh, they perpetuate fallacies, you know, telling people that Jesus doesn't recognize divorce and remarriage under any circumstances until you return to your first spouse, no matter how many years ago that may have been. Um, that's not characteristic, folks, of the grace of Jesus Christ. A lack or, or, or a, a drought of grace and forgiveness does not characterize Jesus Christ, but um, rather they cite the law. They cite the Mosaic law, especially Deuteronomy 24. Yet we know, we've studied it enough previously and, and even mentioned it again today, we know that the law said that returning to your original spouse, even after a lawful divorce, is not what the law in Deuteronomy required. Actually, Deuteronomy 24, verse 4, prohibited that. Um, instead, Christians, this is what we're called to do. We are called to recognize our poor life decisions. Most of us have made some. Some of them uh, have brought us into uh, the current state that we are in cause problems with our families, cause split homes, other things. We are to recognize our decisions that have put us in the state that we're in, ones that might have even altered our life's course, and then move forward in obedience. Move forward in obedience. Scripture calls us to peace, not to redo our past. Um, we should learn through, uh, from our mistakes. Absolutely. We can seek forgiveness from God and from man uh, and from woman, uh, even from a previous spouse. Folks, you can't turn back time. Nor are we required to praise the Lord. And the false doctrine of perpetual adultery, it just causes so much anguish today uh, to current marriages and families. It doesn't offer grace, and, and it, really, it really chafes me. You might see why when we get further in. Um, folks, there is enormous benefit from the internet. Enormous benefit. Uh, you can get much solid teaching if you choose wisely. That's a fact. Um, but whenever you find a source, any source, any source, ask yourself this question. Who is this guy? Um, where did he come from? Did anyone disciple him? Has he served in any church? Ever. 
Does he even attend a church? Would even his home church allow him to lead a Bible study at their church? Ask this, would his own church leaders endorse him? Ask those questions when you get online. Um, You know, scriptural ordination... It isn't just a knowledge test. A lot of us get kind of sucked into that, that it's just knowing facts about the Bible, being able to cite certain verses and, and, and find out where the location, you know, name the books in the order of the Bible, that ordination is some kind of just intellectual knowledge test. It isn't that alone. Uh, ordination isn't a license to marry that just anyone downloads off the Internet. Ordination, folks, it, it's a group of church leaders who over a length of time determine that one of their own is called to ministry. They have observed him as honest, trustworthy, and faithful to the scriptures. So after a period of time, a period of character character evaluation, they lay hands on him. They're giving their spiritual endorsement. Folks, that's not a, uh, a transmission of superpowers. You guys know that, right? When they lay on hands, it's not to give superpowers. It's giving an endorsement saying that we have found this individual trustworthy. Even Paul and Barnabas had hands laid on them uh, by the church in Antioch before they were sent out into missions. In fact, speaking even of of, uh, Kim Hibbard being here today and her being a missionary out of Bible Baptist Church, uh, sometimes with missions we use terminology like commissioned. We commissioned this person, or uh, if he's going into the pastorate, ordained this individual. It's very important to have a home church that sends you out and recognizes that you had a gifting in what you are about to do and supports you along the way. So I just encourage you to investigate the people you listen to online today. You know, make sure they aren't just an armchair theologian with a laptop and a $30 camera. Really. It happens a lot. Um, who sits at home making videos on Sunday because he can't get along with anybody in the church. It's so common. It is so common. It, it is humorous. Um, but be careful to research ministries. I, I'd advise caution toward any ministry, any church leader um, who's never been found trustworthy, even by their own church. It's a biblical minimum. It really is. And it still offers no guarantees. Still offers no guarantees. Um, what was I talking about? Oh, divorce and remarriage, yeah. Um, look at 1 Corinthians 7. We read this together earlier, and I'll pick up around verse 10. I'm going to try to go through this very quickly. We've repeatedly established on previous occasions that although Scripture never passes away, there is over time an unfolding of biblical revelation where Scripture explains and even adds to itself. We no longer offer animal sacrifices. Why is that? It's because we know that Christ is the one-time, final, complete propitiation for our sins as he died for us on the cross. Christians do not follow dietary restrictions. Uh, Jesus in Mark 7, I believe it is, declared all foods clean. Uh, The Sabbath rest has been transferred from resting from work for just a day, for just a day a week, to a complete rest we experience in the atoning work of Christ. Um, So Scripture provides increasing understanding over time. Can Scripture do that? Nod yes. It must. Imagine if if Scripture stopped after Genesis chapter 1. 
what would have happened with Adam and Eve? You know, it's got to continue to unfold, and it does explain itself. And in verse 10, so we have this principle that Scripture continues to unfold and bring us new information, is what I'm trying to say. Scripture provides it, we don't. Um, we, we discover it. And in verse 10, Paul is speaking to married Christians. Paul writes, But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Paul says the instruction in verse 10 comes directly from the Lord. Meaning only that this was announced by Christ during his earthly ministry. Remember, if we were to capture everything that Jesus said, all the books in the world wouldn't even contain it, right? And here Paul is saying that Christ himself announced this during his earthly ministry. And that it would be then consistent with everything else that Jesus taught, right? Because... Scripture doesn't contradict Scripture. Jesus does not contradict himself. So this is consistent with everything else Jesus taught. A believing couple, a husband and wife, two Christians, should not divorce. We always counsel reconciliation for Christian couples. If believers do separate, they are to remain unmarried or reconcile. The point being here that that there should never arise a situation when two Christians can't find a way to forgive one another. Does anything in this passage specifically nullify Jesus' exception in Matthew 19 for sexual immorality? Nothing here addresses that. Just as we observed with Luke 16, 18, um, just as Luke didn't mention it, the instruction here doesn't discuss the provision Jesus gave for uh, sexual immorality. So we must assume here, as we did in Luke 16 18, that merely because the divorce provision for immorality is not stated, that Jesus is not contradicting what he taught elsewhere in Matthew 19, 9. Jesus is not going to contradict what he taught on earth. Remember, Paul says, This is what the Lord taught. So nothing here in 1 Corinthians 7, in in verses 10 and 11, can be proposed to nullify or invalidate what Jesus taught elsewhere. You follow me? It must harmonize with the Lord's other instruction. It it doesn't supersede it. In fact, so as I was looking through this, this week, I become pretty confident that the very reason that Paul says not I, but the Lord, was so that we would know this isn't something new that Paul's coming up with. And and that what the Lord taught in this principle is the Lord's, and it can't contradict what other things the Lord taught. Or else people might come to the conclusion that maybe this is something completely new with Paul and nullifies everything that Jesus taught on marriage. It doesn't. He said this is consistent with everything that Jesus taught in marriage. Um... Therefore, if physical immorality is introduced through a third party, the one man, one woman, one flesh union of the marriage is compromised by introducing a third party. Uh, And that slighted spouse, that slighted spouse becomes free to dissolve 
that marriage, just as Jesus taught, taught excuse me, in Matthew 19, 9. Uh, this was, and it remains, Jesus' teaching, his instruction. It is consistent instruction. So, so this church preserves Jesus' provision uh, for divorce, for sexual immorality. We preserve that in our constitutional statement and bylaws. As a pastor, though, as a pastor, I, I personally will not remarry Christians or a Christian couple who divorced for reasons other than that, other than physical adultery. The Lord commands that they must remain unmarried or be reconciled. Does that make sense? Now, what if, what if that same Christian couple had never been taught this? Oh, um, maybe they were new in the faith. Maybe they had a church that really didn't reference a lot of scripture, uh, and and they became remarried to one another, to other people. Excuse me, became remarried to other people, either by a pastor somewhere or a justice of the peace, uh, and, and maybe they'd even gone on with their new partner to have children together. What do I do then? I would advise them to recognize their behavior was contrary to scripture and therefore sinful that you left your Christian spouse uh, to confess their sins and repent and move forward. And move forward. You can't turn back the clock. But they and their new spouse must live committed to one another in peace. Now you know. Understand God dispenses grace. Don't repeat the cycle. Move forward in obedience to Christ. You know, folks, this is what we would do with any other sin. Whether it is, was drug abuse or, or maybe even premarital sex, not including marriage, drugs, whatever it may have been, we wouldn't say you've got to go back now and undo everything that you did previously. That's not grace. What we do is we move forward now with the knowledge that the Word gives us in obedience. Um, can this new couple become members of this church yes yes you don't think that we have members here who previously disobeyed scripture yeah yeah they're they're here you'll find them we're not going to interrogate ask for phone numbers references of every previous spouse maybe even the the previous ex-spouse um we aren't going to be able to determine whether the person was even a Christian or a non-Christian at the time they divorced. When would we ever get to the end of all that? All Gerald and I would do is sit on the phone calling people for references, researching. Um, Jesus advised uh, the woman at the well, get your beliefs straight and move forward in obedience now, this day forward. Um, again, verses 10 and 11, they apply to married Christians. Married Christians. Pay close attention to the contrast in verse 12. Paul writes, But to the rest I say, not the Lord, meaning the Lord never addressed this following principle during his earthly ministry. So, so this actually is a new provision for the church. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Folks, with the advent of the church and the grafting in of the Gentiles, 
no longer just Israel, the nation of Israel now, the grafting of the Gentiles, there comes an increased uh, likelihood that you're going to have Christians, people who became Christian, while their spouse remains unconverted. Remember, this is Corinth. Uh, If God had not added this instruction, it probably would have been tempting for the Corinthians themselves to conclude that with later instruction from Paul not to be unequally yoked, if they didn't have this instruction here, they might have concluded, you know, it'd just be spiritually beneficial if I just, you know, walk away from this marriage. Don't be unequally yoked. Well, I've got an unbelieving husband. I think I'll just vacate this thing. I'll jettison this marriage if we didn't have this instruction. But Paul writes, no. No, no, quite the opposite, actually. If any Christian has an unbelieving spouse who consents to remain living with him or her, at least peaceably, they're obligated to fulfill their marital vows. Um, The reason? Well, it's provided in verse 14. I'll just give it to you. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Obviously, in the following verses, we find out this is not talking about salvation. It is a, it is a sanctification of uh, environment. Uh, rather than the believing spouse being defiled by the unbelieving spouse, God promises the entire family, spouse and children, will actually be sanctified through the presence of a Christian in the home. They're going to be, their, their home environment is going to be sanctified. Um, Who would ever argue against that? That a believer in the home wouldn't be some kind of benefit. A, a Christian influence in the home serves as a buffer against the influence of the world. It, it does. I, I don't think this implies we need to dra- uh, nag our unbelieving spouse. You know, First Peter 3 would uh, say, no, don't do that. No to nagging. Um, but there, there are three marriage scenarios. Three marriage scenarios. First, you've got two unbelievers who they, who they just, they feed one another's immorality. You know, they nurture the affections for the world, greed and, and uh, uh, idolatry and, and, and profanity and lewdness. You know, two, two unbelievers that in their marriage, they just feed and they egg one another on. Uh, that's, one, uh, oper- that's one scenario. The opposite is generally true in the second scenario. You've got two believers who don't nurture immorality, they nurture holiness. Two believers nurture holiness. You know, shut that TV off. You've had enough to eat, right? Back away from the table. You know, holiness. Keeping one another righteous. That's what believers do. We keep one another uh, righteous. But the third scenario provides an opportunity that should be an encouragement to those of you here today, those of you who are married to an unbeliever. It should be a real encouragement to you. Uh, you're, you might be wondering, you know, is this just a waste of my time? Me hanging in there, is this just a waste of my time? Uh, scripture says it is not. It is not. The Bible says that one Christian in the home is a sanctifying influence in that home, sanctifying to the spouse and to the children. You know, if you love your unbelieving spouse and your children, which I imagine you do, and you're concerned about their future, Scripture affirms that that they'll be far better off with you in the home 
rather than with you leaving the home? Where would they be without you? Imagine, just imagine, imagine if you're in that scenario. Imagine if you left. Let's say you have a, a, a spouse who's profane. Do you, think, do you think he or she would just behave better if you left? Or would they feed on what their uh, unregenerate heart desires? How would that affect your children if you left the home? Uh, so it should not surprise us at all that if, if, if a spouse is willing to remain, an unbelieving spouse is willing to peaceably remain, Scripture calls the Christian to remain. We are to remain in the home. If this describes your situation, as I said earlier, First Peter chapter 3 says, you know, it's not guaranteed... No way is it guaranteed, but it is possible that God will use your, your chaste and respectful behavior as a testimony, even to the point that that spouse might be one to Christ, without even speaking a word. Uh, this, of course, describes a scenario where an unbelieving spouse will remain married to a Christian and do so peaceably. All right, An, an unbelieving spouse who will remain with you. In such case, your family, it remains your primary ministry. Your primary ministry. So verses 12 and 13, a husband or wife who has an unbelieving spouse who consents to peaceably remain, the Christian must remain and not depart. But there's one more possibility. An unbelieving husband, an unbelieving wife, who just becomes infuriated by the faith of the Christian. The Christian spouse. Um, this could be because they, they miss uh, the, the days that they enjoyed with their unbelieving spouse when they used to practice immorality together. The, the, the spouse who would partake in the temple worship or the idolatry or whatever it is that the unbeliever still wants to do. Um, they used to relish that time together. Suddenly now his wife wants to be to bed early on Saturday night so she can get up and go to church on Sunday morning. He misses what they used to have together. Or maybe there's a husband who used to just uh, spend lavishly uh, on his wife's shoe collection or whatever it might have been. And now suddenly he wants to divert some of his money from the home to missions. Can that cause problems? Oh, that can cause problems. Being unequally yoked can cause a lot of problems. Uh, This is the reason Christians are never to marry an unbeliever. Never to marry non-Christians. I I don't care how good looking they are or how much money they make. You don't do it. It's unequally yoked. you're, You're not guaranteed. You're not promised that you can change them. You're not guaranteed that at all. Uh, Salvation is a sovereign act of God. That is, that is a fact. You may think that if you just treat them nicely enough, witness to them maybe for decades, that, that they'll just eventually have to become Christians. No, they don't. No, they don't. You don't know that. You, you don't know that at all. God doesn't promise that if you marry an unbeliever, the Holy Spirit will regenerate their heart. To the contrary, we know that's not true because God warns against marrying an unbeliever. So we know it's not a promise. 
or he would not warn against marrying an unbeliever. He doesn't promise to convert them. The same is true for an unbeliever that you're already married, married to. He doesn't promise it. God doesn't promise they'd be converted. In fact, it's just as plausible that they're going to resent you for your devotion to Christ. Just as plausible. Um, and you as a Christian, you're not to compromise your morals. A Christian spouse, you're, you're not to compromise your morals thinking that, you know, if I just lower myself a little bit, maybe my spouse will come up a little bit and we can meet in the middle somewhere. No, I'm sorry. No, the preceding verses say the unbelieving spouse is supposed to be sanctified by the believing spouse, not meet them halfway in the middle. Um, If they come to the point that they resent your chaste and respectful behavior... And, and they refuse to remain with you. They just say, I'm not putting up with this going to church every Sunday thing that you're doing. I'm not going to put up with this if you will not partake with the life that we once shared together. I, I don't want to be married to you anymore. If that happens, it's when verse 15 takes effect. If the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. The Christian is not to artificially prolong the fight of, you know, just spiritually duking it out. Sometimes it's a stepping out of the ring when they step out of the ring that brings the peace, that restores the peace. Here's the point. We can't force anyone to believe or remain. You can't force that. Not even your spouse. Let them leave. Verse 16 then arises from this principle in verse 15 that we should let them leave. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? The answer, you don't. You don't. My resources tell me that the Greek language here in context, it leans towards a negative response. They probably won't. This is not a call to throw in the towel easily in your marriage. You should fight for your marriage, each of us and every one of us. But you shouldn't perpetually coerce them to remain with you thinking that somehow you're going to save them. You don't know that. You don't, God doesn't promise that. If they refuse to stay, let them leave. Let them leave. Far too many, far too many, a lot of problems have been caused by this as well, far too many have mistakenly been taught that verse 16 leaps off from verse 14. A call to hang in there no matter what. Even if there's abuse, even if the spouse is verbally inflictive, uh, how do you know you might save them by hanging in there? No, that, it's not that. It's the exact opposite. Verse 16 arises out of verse 15. Let them leave. Let them leave. For God has called us to peace. Restore peace as they leave. Um, Sometimes the only way to restore peace is to let them go. It's the last desirable um, scenario. But if they will not remain, Scripture says, let them leave. Again, don't, don't mistake what I'm saying or what Scripture is saying. This doesn't encourage you to drive them off. 
Verse 14 assures our behaviors to be such that we're a sanctifying influence. If they're willing to peaceably say, stay, that just might be an indicator that they are being to, uh, drawn to God by his Holy Spirit if they remain. Um, but some spouses, they don't want chaste and respectful behavior. They want biker bars. That's true. Some unbelieving spouses want biker bars. They want all-night parties. They want a spouse who believes like they did and acts like they did before they were a believer. That type of unbeliever is going to leave a Christian spouse. They will. They will. Um, This passage, it's often used to assign guilt to to that person whose husband left or who ended up being in a divorce. You You should have just stuck it in there longer. Who knows, you might have saved them. Actually, um, this passage here, especially verse 16, is saying God's grace absolves you from the responsibility. You don't have to be guilty. God's grace always takes away the guilt of those things, especially that we cannot control. Uh, That unbeliever, when they leave, Scripture says the Christian is under no bondage in such cases. Um, What does not under bondage mean? Does under no bondage or no longer bound, maybe your translation says, does that suggest a Christian is free to remarry? Um, Is that what the Apostle Paul means when he says not under bondage? Pan down to verse 39. Think not under bondage. Just look at verse 39, 1 Corinthians 7. Considering neither of the provisions for divorce is merited, Paul writes this, a wife is bound, right? Is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Being bound is definitely referring to bound in marriage. Being unbound definitely is referring to be freed from marriage. Paul declares a Christian is not under bondage in such cases. It means the Christian spouse is no longer bound to their marriage vows when the unbelieving spouse leaves. Not not being bound means free to remarry, but only in the Lord for the Christian. Uh, they, They become, in a sense, like other single Christians. They are permitted to marry, but only other Christians. After which, again, verse 11, no leaving then. No leaving after you marry the Christian. Uh, that's the death to us, uh, death to us part. Um, I think we can all pretty well sense clearly uh, that we're always to strive to make a marriage work. Always. Um, the reasons are obvious. It's for the sake of you, the, the sake of your spouse, the sake of your children. If you can find a way to make it work, it's, it's far preferable that it is made to work rather than to be separated Many of us here can give testimonies of families that have been separated. I was involved with one. It's not easy. Not my marriage. My mom's first marriage, where the children are from two different marriages. It's not a situation you really want to be in. God pulled us through it. But it's not something you you long for. Uh, Scripture advises the church always strives to preserve marriages. 
But if there has been physical infidelity, divorce and remarriage are permitted by Christ. When an unbeliever refuses to remain with their Christian spouse, Scripture permits divorce and remarriage for that Christian. Scripturally and, and, and doctrinally, these are the two provisions for divorce and remarriage that are reinforced in our church constitution and our bylaws. You know, and regardless of what you previously heard um, elsewhere, this is the reasonable interpretation, the clear and reasonable interpretation of Scripture, and it's what this membership of this church believes. Whatever state you find yourself in today, whoever you're married to, uh, if possible, hang in there. Hang in there uh, as you are now confident of what Scripture asks of you. That's what Scripture says. Uh, there are numerous other just extenuating circumstances that have to do with divorce and remarriage. There's just no way to cover them all. Impossible to cover them all. One would be, you know, if, if an unbeliever leaves, can the remaining believing spouse file for divorce? All these questions come up out of this. Uh, or does he or she have to wait three decades until their deadbeat spouse will file? Does that make any sense? No, I would think after a reasonable period of time since their spouse departed, the spouse didn't remain, it left. The believer can, and I would say after verse 15, probably should file for divorce after an appropriate uh, period of time. Let them leave. Just because they're too lazy to go to the courthouse and file for themselves doesn't mean that they remained with you. Uh, also, can a divorced man be an elder or deacon in the church? You know, that really depends on a lot of factors, folks. Was he divorced last week? No. No. Um, was he divorced 50 years ago, even before he was a Christian believer and been a one-woman man ever since as a Christian? You know, I guess if blasphemers and violent aggressors and murderers, the likes of Saul the Pharisee, before they were a Christian, I guess, if, if an apostle can come out uh, from sins like that, I, I imagine God can use people who are divorced to be useful for himself. Every situation is different. A period of time, obviously. There, there's no set rule on that. Um, Christ would just suggest that meeting the elder qualifications in Scripture uh, be made. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. It is not. Every divorce has to be weighed according to its own merits. Um, I wouldn't give a blanket statement, except I'm going to close with this, because there's really no fast, set rule of how much time, how many marriages, were they a Christian, weren't they a Christian, so many things involved. We take it on a case-by-case basis. I would say there is one hard, fast rule. I'll leave you with this. A Christian pastor who, after being called and ordained by his church to the gospel ministry, and while in the capacity of shepherding his church, if he gets divorced, he is permanently disqualified from the pulpit ministry, permanently from the pastorate. There is no restoration to leadership for the sexually immoral pastor. Way too much of that going on today. He will never again rise to the qualification of above reproach or the husband of one wife or one woman man. And in 1 Timothy 3.5 it says, If a man does not know how to manage his own household well, then how will he manage the household of God? 
How can you go through a divorce and say, well, I manage my household well? No way, no way. Um, your wife leaving or your sending her away as a pastor is not managing your household well. Divorce for a pastor, that's, that is an intolerable, intolerable scandal to the name of Christ. I don't care, I say this straight, I don't care if you're Billy Graham's grandson. He's opened up shop again after committing adultery with one of his own church members, the way I understand it. Down in West Palm now. You don't get absolved from scriptural principles just because you're famous. Um, you're done. At that point, you're done. My pastor, Tom Nelson, when I was ordained at Denton Bible Church, I think Rita was in the room when he said this. He said, you screw your marriage up, you're done. You're done. Were you there when he said that? Yeah. She, she was there. Uh plenty of other ways for a scandalized pastor who repents to serve. There are in the church. There are great ministries. I tell you what, uh, the, the one with Tim Gunter and, and the others who are so faithful, John Sanford for so many years, mowing the lawn, caring for the facilities, um, evangelists, so many things that a restored pastor, a repentant pastor can do. He can't be restored back to the pulpit. Um, you may get a church to take you but you'll never again be trusted as a shepherd of the flock of God, at least not in God's economy. And God's the one who decides that. Remember we talked about marriage and gay marriage and everything. It's like we should stop using those terms together. It's fornication is what it is. They may have a certificate that says marriage, but um, God doesn't recognize it as a marriage. You've been divorced and committed adultery in the pulpit. You might have someone that calls you pastor. That doesn't mean God calls you pastor. Um... One final note, you're going to hear theoretical arguments like, well, Jesus would never divorce his bride, the church, so he would never under any circumstance permit divorce among Christians. Here's your response to that proposal. Well, that's not what the Bible says. Simple enough, I think you win that one. Um, You could also ask that person, are you perfect like Christ in every other way too? None of us are. We don't treat any other sins in that way, that they're unredeemable. Um, we need to show everybody grace, including those who've been through divorce, yet we respond by moving forward in obedience to him.